Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for leading us thus far. Let's continue to worship the Lord by coming to his word and and looking into what it can teach us today. We're going to open the scriptures at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll continue at verse 12. Oh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, sorry. Yeah. Chapter 1 and verse 12. I was only one out, Steve. Yeah. That's pretty good for me. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12 and we're going to read through to verse 4 of chapter 2. Please follow with me. Keep your finger in the page. It's most important as we continue on with this message. Verse 12 says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence I intend that first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes, yes and no at the same time? But God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, also, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Sure, God will add a blessing to his word. Wow, you know, it's a great translation we have in the NASB, King James and the whatever you have there. 
And, but it's sure difficult, really, to get your head around it, isn't it? You know, with the yes and the no and the no and the yes and, and so forth. But um, bear with me, and with God's, by God's grace, we'll make it a little clearer as we explain this text today. Now, I am sure you have experienced times when you have expressed your intentions to do something or maybe to be somewhere and circumstances completely outside your control crop up and derail them, right? I'm sure you've been there. Well, here in our text, this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. His original plan to visit Corinth was put on hold because of a number of issues, can we say, that were outside of his control. The demands of ministry in the city of Ephesus, which is in the area of modern Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, the demands of ministry in this city, and also primarily the unrepentant spirit and response from the Corinthians that Paul had received and seen, all helped to trigger a change of plans. Now, folks, I love plans and I endeavour to stick to them, especially when other people are involved. And uh, and you try to best your best to be reliable, right? You try your best to be there in time, and when you say you're going to be there, you you do really try your best. But there are times when when plans and intentions involving people not only need to be changed, but the trouble is when those changes do happen, those changes that are outside your control and have to be made, the problem is they can be completely misunderstood by people who are involved in them. And that's difficult. That's difficult when they misunderstand you. But that's what the Corinthians did to the Apostle Paul. They accepted his intended plans to visit them and then they turned around and judged his failure to do so exactly as he said. They judged him as unreliable, inconsistent, and even as an apostle who could not be trusted. This faulty analysis, no doubt, just to give you a little bit of understanding there, was aided and abetted, if not instigated, more than likely, by false prophets who had crept into the church after Paul had established the church for 18 months and were causing upsets. And so these guys were responsible, no doubt, for this and they persuaded the whole church or the, the, a large section of the church to doubt Paul's intentions or his ongoing intentions toward them. What they did was their very best to undermine the Apostle Paul's apostolic authority. They they challenged his integrity over this minuscule plan change. How true it is, folks, how true it is that if you want to cast doubt on a man's word, and when I say man, I say mean person, the best way to go about that is to malign his character. And this is what Paul's enemies were doing in Corinth. Reminds us of another case, and that's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden, right? Toward Eve. Satan firstly maligned God's character by coming to Eve and saying, 
Indeed, has God said, you surely will not die. He did that in order to cast doubt on the veracity of God's word to Adam and Eve. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul's enemies were doing here at Corinth. They were all about finally discrediting the message that the Apostle Paul and his team brought. How did they do that? By first attacking his character. Now how on earth do you handle people like that in your life, in my life? It may not happen exactly the same as it happened to Paul, but it crops up now and again, right? People misunderstand you. You say something and they go off in tangents. They, they then judge your motives and, and they, they fail to understand the circumstances and then they immediately wrongly judge your integrity and using a colloquial expression, they begin barking up the wrong tree. This happens. Well, here in the second letter, but really it's the fourth letter, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and answers these questions for us or this question for us. Just going back in the first section of the letter we looked at two weeks ago, we saw how Paul viewed and handled stress. How he handles stress and the pressures of life. Stress and pressures that we all experience to some degree or another. And we looked at that in verses 1 to 11. And he taught us from his own life example that through affliction, through stress, through pressure, whatever that might be, we can more abundantly, because of that stress and pressure, experience the comfort of God. In other words, if you never had the stress, you wouldn't know anything too much about the comfort of God. We also learned that through being comforted in times of stress, we are so more equipped to comfort others. And then we also saw that in times of affliction, it causes us what? Not to trust in ourselves, but to fall at the foot of the cross and to trust in God. And then affliction and stress give us great opportunity for so many more to pray. Now today, today beginning at verse 12, Paul's real life examples shine through again here for us. Not in stressful situations, well, the stress is not the issue here today, but here he tells us how he handled being misunderstood and his method of going about to rectify this wrong, false judgment that the Corinthian church were loading onto him. He tells us how he goes about that. Paul shines through us through for us again here. He comes through, I believe, as a model example of Christian living when that kind of thing happens to us. That's how I want you to look at this passage today because that's how I believe that it, what it is written for. And so the first issue we're going to look at is the priority of a transparent conscience. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Now, what it says here, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. 
For we write nothing else to you than you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. I love how the Apostle Paul starts on this. Rather than attack the cause and the people that were causing him angst, he looks within himself. Paul begins by making plain to the Corinthians that his conscience is clear on this whole matter. He wants him to understand that, that yes, I hear your gripe, and then he goes all out to search his own heart before God as to its purity in this whole matter that has been brought before him. It's a bit like David, remember? You remember King David in the psalm? He said, search me, O God, and see if there, King James Version, if there be any wicked way in me. He searched within. Let's stop right there, folks. Let's stop there. Because too often, I believe, when we're accused of something or when somebody misjudges us, the first thing we tend to do is to go on the defense, right? We go on the defensive and we react, even sad to say, angrily at sometimes at wrong judgment. But what the believer should do, what we should do, is follow Paul's model here and do some inward searching. You might say, well, how do I do that? Simple. Ask ourselves. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself in the Lord. Is there anything about this in me that God condemns? Do some searching. Is, is there a more Christ-like way that I could have handled this situation? Or does my conscience bother me about any part of this at all? Those are the kind of questions you need to ask yourself to search your conscience. Honestly, before the Lord. And then if some of those things come up with an affirmative, yes, there is something wrong, there is something that you could have done better, or your conscience is not quite clear, then your first step, brothers and sisters, is confession before the Lord, right? You've got to put that right before the Lord. But don't leave it there. Then you've got to go and put it right with your brother or sister or sisters or brothers, whatever the case may be. Sad to say, this imperative, vital step this first step is too often bypassed. It's too often bypassed. We tend to ignore our conscience and rather just wait on in to justify our actions, whatever they might be. Folks, you must understand this. Our conscience is not infallible, right? We know that. It's not infallible like the Word of God is. But at the same time, it's an excellent warning system. That's what God gave it to us for. It's designed to alert us as to wrongdoing. And Romans chapter 2 tells us that even the Gentile, that is the, the pagan, the unsaved person, has a conscience as to what is right and wrong. The law of God is written on his heart. But the trouble is, it needs to be programmed. It needs to be updated. The conscience is not a pure light, as it were, 
in and of itself. No, no. What it does, it drags light, can I say, from the outside into itself so that it will give the owner of that conscience direction on moral and ethical issues. That's what it does. I like how John MacArthur puts it in his commentary. He says this, The conscience functions like a skylight, not a lamp. It does not produce its own light, but merely lets moral light in. End quote. In other words, as believers, our consciences have been resensitized. That's what happens when we're saved. Our consciences are resensitized to allow the law of God to light it up. You got that? To light it up. To energize it so that we can use this personal warning system for God's glory in our everyday lives. That's why it's so vital, folks. That's why it's vital to expose yourself, your heart, your conscience, to the Word of God in order for your conscience to be effective. Because if it's not being lit up, can I say, by the law of God, that's the Scriptures, it will get its light from somewhere else. And you know where it's going to get it from? It's going to get it from culture and the world. And when it gets it from there, our conscience become dim. They become deadened to God's light and His ways. I get real nervous when I see professing Christians acting or living sinfully without seemingly a worry in the world. I also get real nervous at times when I hear professing Christians say, I feel at peace about my decision. I, I, I feel this is where God is leading me. Even, you know, holy words like that. I get real nervous when I hear that kind of thing, especially when I know the folly and the danger or the sin or suspect selfish motives behind their decisions. I get real nervous. You see, folks, a believer's conscience, my conscience, your conscience, it can be so saturated with worldly standards rather than the light of God's truth that it fails to warn us of the peril that we're placing ourselves in. It does. It becomes dead. And what ends up, we end up calling what is wrong right or okay or become completely indifferent about something that we should not be indifferent about. This is why Scripture lays such importance on keeping a good and clear conscience. Paul exhorts young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, The goal of our instruction, he says, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Well, Paul's conscience was clear of anything wrong in regard to the Corinthian issue. It was clear. He searched his conscience before God and it came up squeaky clean. But let's note how Paul does this. He searches and sees that all his conduct toward the Corinthians was done, how? With holy and godly sincerity. That's what the text says. You see that? Holy and godly sincerity. Now, the word sincere here is an interesting word. I love this word. It's how it's translated into our English because it describes what flows out of that which is holy. In other words, godly sincerity can only flow out of that which is holy. It can't flow out of anything else. The word sincere, by the way, was a word that was often used by a careful merchant when he was buying a clay vessel from a potter. 
what he would do, to look at that clay vessel, he just wouldn't take it and put it on a shelf. He would carefully hold it up to the sunlight to see if there were any cracks in it. Because some dodgy potters, as we have dodgy people around today, some dodgy potters in those days, what they would do, they would make this pot, and you know how in the kiln some actually come out with cracks in it, so you meant to discard them, but some, oh, I don't want to do that. So what they would do in Paul's day would put wax on the cracks and just with a human eye, hey, this is a perfect pot. But the careful potter, no matter what the pot was, he would hold it up to the sunlight and even when there was wax in it, it would expose the cracks. But when there was no cracks, that was a sincere pot. You got the story? This is where the word sincere was used. No cracks under the scrutiny of the sunlight was called sincere. And this is the idea that Paul was using here of himself. He held himself up to not the world's light or the culture's light, but God's light. No cracks. But also his sincerity or no cracks came from God's power in him. You know, this wasn't just because Paul was a good guy and had the ability to say no and had the human uh, endeavours to, to be really, really super religious and, uh, and carry out all the prophets. No, no, no. Actually, he speaks of this in verse Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. This is what he says. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I laboured even more than them all, yet not I but the grace of God in me. You see, his sincerity, his no-cracks life toward the Corinthians and all his ministry, it did not come from human endeavor or intellectual insightfulness or any other kind of fleshly ability or motive. No way. It didn't come from there. His sincerity was transparently clear because what? He lived out the grace of God. That's what he did among the Corinthians. He was tainted with no other motives. He was a channel, can we say, of God's grace. Now, isn't that what we're meant to be, folks? A channel of God's grace? People should look at our lives and say, wow, there's something different about that person. They may not know too much about Jesus Christ, but we often are the nearest thing they will ever see of Jesus Christ. Any cracks? sincerity was transparently clear. But anyway, what he had done had apparently offended some of these, or what, his change of plans had obviously offended some of these Corinthians. And he, and he wants them to know that as far as his standing before God, his conscience is absolutely clear. And that is what verse 13 tells us here in our text. We write nothing but what you can read and understand. You see that? What that's basically saying is I really want to clear this up here. His conscience is clear and he wants him to know what he has written is the real deal. There's no hidden agendas. You know that like you get some letters and some writing you've got to try and read between the lines to see where the guy's coming from? Paul wasn't like that. What he wrote was what you got. Absolute. This is what he says here. I really want you to understand. And so what he has written is exactly what he wants him to understand and he hopes that they will be able to fully grasp this letter because he longs to restore what? He longs to restore a mutual sense of pride in one another. 
In other words, he wants them, rather than to doubt his integrity and his character and his word and his message, he wants them to be pleased, to be proud of him coming amongst them as he also wants to be proud of them. Now, that pride is not in a sinfully pride way, but it's a kind of pride that, uh, that I have here and that hopefully you will have of being belonging to this family and being a teacher amongst you. I am so pleased with, to the Lord and thankful for you for being patient and belonging to this family, as Steve said. And Paul wanted that. He wanted this mutual togetherness, pride in one another. In other words, because of Paul's godly sincerity among them, the Corinthians should have been proud of Paul, not doubting his integrity. They should have rejoiced and they should have made much of how the Lord had sent this man among them to bring them the gospel. And not only that, there should have been this ongoing joy and looking forward to one day of being in the Lord Jesus Christ together, of meeting him and being there together. That's what Paul is saying here. So Paul wanted to restore, wanted a restored, a reciprocal and a transparent relationship with these difficult people. That's what he wanted. Now, this is what we as believers ought to keep constantly striving for, right? A clearness of relationship with each other. Now, as soon as we think that, we must understand that that means a bit of hard work at times. I know I'm a pretty difficult sort of person to get on with at times. And um, I'm too short, I'm a bit curt. You know, I'm a work in progress, just like we all are here. I am, I really am a a piece of work in progress and and God has, has really, has a lot more work to do with me. But this is what we should do. But trouble is, some people adopt the attitude of indifference on this. When anything crops up, when any offence might be given or you might be offended or might have said something that has hurt someone or, or whatever, some people take the attitude, ah, forget about it. Bury it. Hoping that the wrong done will disappear over time, etc., etc., etc. But the trouble is, folks, the trouble is wrongs and offences committed don't just disappear. How many times do we know where those kind of things have a habit of clinging on. And what they end up doing is they end up tainting and polluting our love for one another in the church or maybe just a few in the church or a person in the church. And then what happens, it can happen at any other time, any time, it resurfaces. It resurfaces after supposedly sometimes being buried for years. It all crops up and blows up in our face because it wasn't dealt with properly in the first place. You see, everywhere in the Word of God, we are taught that as Christians, we must not let sin of any kind lie unsettled. No. We're to keep short accounts with God and we're to keep short accounts with one another. That's what the Scripture teaches. You see, remember... The, old, the story in Genesis, Cain and Abel, God said to Cain, sin is lying at your door. In other words, Cain, don't harbour on it, deal with it. Come and repent and put it right. But no, Cain didn't decide. He said, if sin is lying at your door and we know that it will pounce as it did in Cain's situation where he rose up and killed his brother. 
Well, folks, we're to go all out to restore any wrongful action or misunderstanding. This is what Jesus said too, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? He said, if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, 23, 24. That's the idea there. Transparent relationships are tremendously important. And much of the strife, sad to say, between people and in the church is irritated because of an unwillingness to search and clear the conscience at the very beginning. Paul next explains what the trouble was. He then goes on and explains what the trouble was. We see this in verses 15 to 22. And he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. You hear that? I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a, have a second experience of grace. That means so that I could visit you two times, once and then again. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? That's read from the English Standard Vision. In other words, here is Paul's plan A. Okay? Here is Paul's plan A, which the Corinthians were, they were so revved up about this. He was to leave Ephesus, go directly across the Aegean Sea to Corinth, and then after he had visited them, proceed up through northern Greece, which is the Macedonia, and then come back the same way and then come to Corinth again and then being helped on the way and no doubt with the gift he had um, gathered up through all the churches that he had planted, uh, then be sent by the believers at Corinth back to Judea. This was his original plan A. Intentional plans, but owing to circumstances outside of his control, plan B needed to be put into action, which Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 to 9. This is what he says. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia. You get that? For I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Wow, I think this is a better plan. A whole lot more time, but anyway that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you just now in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits, but I shall remain at Ephesus until Pentecost. That's plan B. That was plan B. It involved a change in plans by going through Macedonia first rather than to Corinth first. Minuscule, right? What's the deal? Like I mean to say, who would get so upset about that? But as trivial and silly as this issue was, the false teachers used this plan change to question Paul's character and some of the church were being sucked into this big time and even to the point of doubting his integrity. But if we really looked at this section, we'll look at this section, we'll see that it was not Paul's character that was really the issue because it was his character that shone through par excellence in every form, in every way. It shone through over and over. 
And we need to take note of this, these character traits that Paul allows us to see here. And as we take note of them, we need to say, oh, wow, how do I measure in this area? We need to emulate Paul here. And so his first character trait that I believe we see in this section is his loyalty. Is his loyalty. You see, his plan to visit them at, even at all, his plan to visit them at all was all about his loyal love toward this, this struggling, so superly gifted and yet doubting church. He, wanted, he was loyal to them. He would do whatever he needed to do for their spiritual well-being. He loved these difficult people. Loyalty was at the top of the Apostle Paul's character trait list, if you want to put it that way. He was not giving up on these people, even when they doubted his loyalty to them. Loyalty. Wow. Sad to say, it's a fading concept or character trait in the world, right? Whether it's in the workplace, on the employment scale or whatever. It's just not there, even like it used to be. It's more of every man for himself, or every company for himself, for itself, and doing what is right in your own eyes. That's what it's like out there in the world. Loyalty's gone down the tube. Not too much of it anymore. But more concerning, brothers and sisters, more concerning is that loyalty is also a diminishing characteristic among believers. Loyalty to Christ, loyalty to the marriage bond, loyalty to one another, loyalty to the local church is hemorrhaging like never before. The dear saint of God, this should not be so among us, right? It should not be so among us. Our loyal love to Christ, you know, it can be measured. It can be measured in the here and now. It can be measured by our loyal love to one another. And that's just not my opinion. That comes from the Word of God. The Apostle John says this in his first letter. He says in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay our lives down for our brethren. That's the measure of loyal love, folks. Any cracks? It sure is in me. Paul was loyal and so ought we be toward one another for Christ's sake. And secondly, Paul was honest. Paul was honest. You see, the Corinthians not only doubted his loyalty, but they doubted his honesty. They questioned his honesty. It seems they considered Paul's plan change to be a result of, of someone who is fickle and untrustworthy. And that's why Paul questions him with a sharp retort. And I paraphrase this, if you'll allow me. And this is what he says. Do you really think that I am so indecisive that I give an affirmative answer and at the same time to cover all my bases I give a negative one? Is that what you really think I do? They were accusing the Apostle Paul of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. That's what they were doing. But Paul's words were never yes and no at the same time. Not like our, many of our politicians these days, sad to say. And even ourselves sometimes at times. 
Jesus said the same thing here, remember, one time? He, he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Matthew 5, 37. That's from the NIV. Pretty clear to understand. You see, Paul was honest as he, as he always had been and the Corinthians should have known this. They lived with the guy and he lived with them for 18 months where he didn't even take a penny from them because he worked as a tent maker amongst them so they would not doubt his motives. He could have. We discussed that back in First Corinthians. He had the freedom to expect to be paid for his ministry, but in Paul's freedom, he chose not to, and he was honest before them, and so they should have known. They should have known. But Paul then goes one step further here, in verse 18, and he affirms his honesty by calling God, calling upon God to be his witness, to witness his declaration as being honest. What does he say? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. A poor comparison, but it's a little bit like going into the court and putting your hand on the Bible and say, I swear before God to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. This is what Paul is doing here. This is what Paul is doing here. He affirms it further. He didn't have to, but he did. He chose to. Folks, Paul was both loyal and honest, which the Corinthians experienced. He was completely transparent for them, including us, for us to take note and model. Paul was also reliable. We see this in verses 19 to 20. You see, the Corinthians didn't let up on, on Paul. They not only questioned his loyalty and his honesty because of his change of travel plans, their attack flowed over into a doubt, the content of his preaching. It goes from bad to worse here. That's why Paul strongly defends the reliability and the dependability of the message that he and the whole team preached when among them in verse 19. And so Paul again here affirms that their preaching was absolutely trustworthy. In other words, he says, everything we preached was centered, and he uses the whole title here, if you note the text, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Every word is true and absolutely reliable. And just to make sure that they'd got this all down, Paul adds something else. He says, all the promises we preached will come to fruition in Christ. And just as every promise of God is true, even, listen to this, even the amens that we said on the message that we preached came from God. That's why I love hearing amens, sincere amens. Paul and his team were transparently reliable. They preached the true gospel. And even the amens, in other words, even the affirmation that was preached, that the, that the whole team said, they came from God himself. Now, you cannot get anything better than that, folks. I can say amen, but wow, you don't know my heart. Maybe because I'm trying to please the preacher or please everyone else. Or have everyone say, oh, wow, he must be a spiritual man. He says Amen. Okay, amen. It's good to hear that. But not the Apostle Paul. His amens came from God. They were inspired amens. Paul was genuine. Verse 21, 22. 
Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as of God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. What Paul does here is he gives honor where honor is due. In other words, he says that although I have proved my genuine apostleship, and I'm loyal, yes, I'm honest, yes, I'm reliable, yes, but my integrity is only a result of what Christ has done in me. I love that. He's not boasting in those character traits. It's Christ in him that allows him to do that, to live that out. So what has God done? Paul tells us in verse 21. He uses four important verbs here, very important verbs, that that we could probably preach a whole series on, but for the sake of this morning, we'll just briefly touch on each of them. First of all, he establishes believers in Christ at salvation. And this is the work of God's saving grace when he draws us to himself. And I believe this word here has a continuing sense in the fact that he not only establishes us where we're taken from the broad road and put on the narrow road that leads to eternal life, but he continues establishing us as he teaches us in his word. So he establishes believers. And as a result of being established, of course, we are brought into that eternal relationship with God and with one another as we can enjoy here today. He also anoints believers. That is, he commissioned believers to serve him. Each one of us who are believers here today are commissioned, are anointed to serve him. How does that take place? It's, a, it's the anointing or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when we come to faith. It has the idea of a divine anointing. You know, in the Old, the, the Old Testament economy, when, when a king was anointed to be king, there was oil poured over his head. But we are anointed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at our conversion so that we might be guided and empowered and taught by him. Listen to what John says in his epistle, 1 John 2.27. As for you, he's speaking to believers here, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. There it is. Abides in you. That's a fact. That's not something we can choose or chop and change. It's a fact. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you to abide in him. So what does that mean? Does that mean so? Oh, forget about the preaching. No, no, it's not talking about that. It's talking about those things that you're challenging yourself this morning as you hear the word preached. As you have looked at your life and said, oh wow, I have got some cracks in that area, some major cracks. I need to really get this right before the Lord and maybe with other people. That's the teaching. That's the Spirit of God teaching you. You don't have have me to tell you that. It's applying the Word of God to your life. And thirdly, Paul recognized that believers are sealed by God. You see that? Paul uses this word sealed. What it it describes here is it's a mark of ownership. That's what it means. It's like being stamped with a brand that clarifies ownership. When I was in my farming days, I used to have an earmark. You had to put on a ear, cattle, cow's ear and punch it and, and I used to chop a, a special pattern out of a cow's ear. You know what? No one else in the whole of New Zealand had that earmark. That was registered as my brand. And as soon as that was placed in that cattle's, cow's ear, that cow was mine. It identified who it belonged to. Well, that's what God has done in Christ to us. He has branded us. Now, thankfully, not with an earmark. 
He sealed us with an eternal mark of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8 and 9 says. It says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You see? And finally, we see that God gave us. Gave us a spirit in our hearts as a pledge. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not only the anointing seal, but also a down payment. This is what this means here. It's a down payment of better things to come. I love that. The pledge of God is given to us. It's a guarantee that an eternal inheritance awaits those who are in Christ. Sometimes it's used, this is what the word, the engagement ring. Put on an engagement ring, it's like a, like a pledge. It's like a deposit of better things to come. It has that idea in it. And we've got better things to come, right? Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. Amen. Yeah, we've got better things to come. Yeah, we struggle. We sin. We fail the Lord, sadly. But man, we've got a heart for God. We want to serve Him. We want to love Him more and more. And we look for the day when this pledge will become a reality. That's what we're looking for. That's what Christ has done for us. The transparency of Paul's argument is clear here, folks. He is saying, in the light of these eternal realities brought about by the Holy Spirit in your lives, in the light of all these eternal truths that we are taught and preached in which you believed, how come, he says, how come you are now doubting my integrity as an apostle over a simple plan change? Like, let's get real. How ridiculous is that? A simple application here, folks, is, and I've often said it, never lose sight of the forest for the trees. In other words, never, and just a couple of examples, never allow the judgment of your spiritual leaders or any other believer to be negatively coloured by mere hearsay of others. Because that's what the Corinthians fell for. We'll move on. Number three, and just closing with this, the priority of transparent conduct. We see this from the last section, verse 23, right through the end of verse verse 4 of, uh, of the next chapter. And, and what he tells the readers here is, is why he changed his travel plans. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you. See that in verse 23. That is the reason number one, he did not come because he wanted to spare them. They were still unrepentant at this stage. And so he was sensitive toward their spiritual challenges. And Apostle Paul did not want to provoke unnecessary conflict that would drive away true and genuine repentance. You know, no doubt he could have come there with his persuasive words and, and with his rhetoric and, and, and with a, maybe a disciplinary tone in his voice and, and he could have had all of them coming up to the altar, as it were. He didn't want to do that. He wanted genuine repentance. And he was sensitive. In other words, Paul showed insensitivity and he did not want to interfere with God's ongoing work of grace in their lives. He, didn't, he, he wasn't Lord over their faith, it says in verse 24. He wasn't the supreme authority over their spiritual well-being. Paul is saying to them, I did not come in order that you would, would not feel pressured to do what I want, but rather have the freedom to do what God wants. Folks, Paul knew when to back off. He really did. 
He knew when to back off. He was not frightened about confronting him. He had already done that, remember? He had had a visit, a painful visit, it's referred to in Second Corinthians. He had already visited them over a lot of these issues and others. And he had, it was a very painful visit. He, 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 he didn't want to do that again. And so he sat off, he sat back because underneath he was confident that their faith was firm even though they were transgressing and getting carried away with themselves. And he knew that in God's timing, because their faith was firm, that that faith in itself, in those people, would produce glory to God and joy for themselves as well as Paul would. He knew that true faith and genuine faith would produce the goods. They didn't need him to come along and interfere with another visit earlier like he was suggesting and, and give them a caning because these people were still unrepentant. So he backed off and changed his plans to give them a bit more time. He changed, so he was sensitive toward them and he changed his plans out of love, explained in verse 4 of chapter 2. His change of plans was in hope that it might resolve in a longer visit. You notice that? Because his second plan B was that he might stay there all winter. And, um, and so that it might bring joy. Time, extra time was given for the Spirit of God to bring about repentance. And by the way, which it did, which we'll see later on in this letter, and which it did, he wanted it to bring joy, not sorrow again, for him and for them. And so here you can see the Apostle's heart of love, right? as we've been thinking about already in our service this morning, his heart of love for these difficult people. He wrote, it says here, with many tears. Imagine that scene. What a powerful picture that portrays. A man of God with tears streaming down his face. Such was the love the Apostle Paul, this leader, had for this church. Folks, that's the heart of the Apostle made transparent for all us to see. These are the marks of any true, by the way, godly leader. And for all of us to aspire to and work towards. When he was so misunderstood, what did Paul do? He searched his conscience. And it came up clear. He was sincere. There were no flaws. He was loyal. He was honest. He was reliable. He was genuine. He was sensitive. And he was loving. That's the character and conduct of a man of God. Even though he was judged otherwise. That's the true mark of Christianity in action, by the way. That's what it really looks like. That's what it really should look like. May we learn to follow Paul's model and as he modelled Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for enlightening our hearts and eyes this morning just to see something more of your servant, the Apostle Paul, and how he handled difficult circumstances and people. And so, Lord, we just pray that as believers here this morning, this is our model as well. Because as we model Paul, we know that he modeled Christ. And, Father, we thank you can learn from him. Help us to be sincere loyal, loving and honest and help us to be transparent not only before you but before one another. We thank you for challenging us with these 
wonderful words of truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit that you have given us as a pledge and a seal. You've anointed us. Father, we give thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.